May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. We made it. It's Easter. Happy Easter, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, my name's Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we're excited. It's a good day, um, obviously because it's Easter, and we're going to talk about Jesus and Easter here in a second, um, but there's lots of signs of life around us, and one in particular we wanted to talk about. So Sojourn Church New Albany is part of what we call the Sojourn Collective, and that started in 2000. There's four local churches around the greater Louisville area, but it all changes today. Uh, today is the first official launch Sunday of Sojourn Carlisle. Um, so Sojourn Church Carlisle... They're gathering right now, and this is on the south end of Louisville. It's in Iro right by Iroquois Park. It's a historic church that's been around for about 100 years, and they reached out to us about a year ago, and they were just kind of figuring out what's, what's next in the, the life of their church. And so uh, a team from our, our Midtown location has gone out there uh, to mix with the members that were still there, and we thank God for new life and new churches. So Sojourn Carlisle, go uh, check it out down by Iroquois Park. We're excited. And uh, as you think about it, pray for them and new works, and uh, maybe next one will be in Indiana. Huh? Anybody? Nope. Or not. <laughs> we'll just keep planting churches in Kentucky, I guess. That's fine. Let me know when y'all are ready. Um, so with things like that in mind, and uh, you know, holidays for me tend to be a time where I step back and, and look around uh, to try to take in the view of the last year or so, and uh, I've been kind of overwhelmed by all of the things that Christians do. Uh, and what I mean by that is, have you ever stepped back and thought about the reality that Christians historically have been the changers of the world? When you, when you look at, it's strange to me that this something happened 2,000 years ago with a guy in a Middle Eastern town, and we're in Indiana now, and you guys are here. This is a, not a normal service time for us, you guys paid attention and you got here. Our outfits are arranged around this. Our days are arranged around this. And that's just strange to me that something happened all that time ago, and yet, and yet here we are. And you, you go even further from that. People living in the name of Jesus are the greatest force for good this world has ever known. Uh, I'm going to tell you something now about that might blow your mind. Do you know Christians started Yale and Harvard Princeton, the greatest school. Maybe you're like, really? Christians started those things now? Like, maybe that surprises you today. But those were like tips of the spear for the kingdom of God for a long time. Christians started those places. Do you know it was Christians that taught the world to read and put books in everyone's hands? Christians are the hospital builders. Christians are the school starters, the abolitionists, the healers of the world. Church planting used to be you go somewhere and yes, you start your church. Yes, you evangelize. And while you're doing that, you open up an orphanage. You open up a hospital. You start a school and you, you care for the world. History books cannot contain all that has been done in the name of Jesus. We are changers of the world. And I wonder how many of us wake up in the morning, look in the mirror. Maybe you've got a cool pedestal sink and you you grab the sides of your sink and you look and you say, I am imbued with divine power to change the world. <laughs> By the tepid laughter, I'm guessing some of you are skeptical about 
our status as world changers. Maybe, maybe we're just not a very responsive church. We don't want to be those Christians. If you're, if you're visiting, I'll talk about Christians a lot today. Uh, and I know some of you are here, you're paying penance to mom. I get it. It's all right. We'll get through it. We'll give you a couple cheap laughs and you can get to brunch. Um, maybe we're just a very conservative church. And I mean that in terms of disposition, right? We're just not very responsive. We would hate to make somebody uncomfortable in church. Um, maybe. I think the reason that some of what I've just said is difficult for us to rally behind is something else than just maybe some of our cultural unresponsiveness. I think the reason many of us are skeptical, the reason that it's hard for us to get behind the idea that we are filled with this kind of world-changing power is I think many of us are just simply bored. And there's a degree of boredom that's good for you. We're trying to teach our children that it's okay to be bored. You don't need endless entertainment every minute of every day. Uh, You should have some space for your brain. It's okay to be bored. The Christian boredom that I'm talking about is more that prolonged feeling of listless uncertainty or inner hollowness. Maybe it's a gnawing feeling that something is missing. And you, you go back to what you were told in youth group, all you need is Jesus. And so you say, all I need is Jesus. And then you still feel kind of hollow, and, but then you feel guilty about it. And then this cycle repeats. Maybe, maybe boredom for you is more feeling of being trapped Maybe trapped in your own life, maybe trapped in your own body. You feel hopeless either because you, you think the things, the circumstances of your life can't change, or if you're really honest with yourself, maybe it's that you think you can't change. Sometimes, and I, I'm aware of what I do for a living right now. I'm a professional Christian, right? Like Sometimes, the way we go about being Christians can begin to feel deeply unsatisfying and simply boring. And so, when you hear the excited preacher on Easter Sunday say, we're changers of the world, maybe there's just something inside of you that says, maybe they are. Maybe those people, maybe the people that are, man, how amazing that would be to be part of Sojourn Midtown and go lunch Sojourn Carlisle. Like, oh my gosh, that'd be so amazing if I was one of the, if I was the school, if I was, but that's just not me. And so, we come to Easter, and, you know, it's Easter again. How many of you, don't answer this now, this is rhetorical, I don't want anyone to get in a fight after this, this is between you and Jesus now, how many of you woke up today more excited about what you would eat today than an empty tomb? I'm pretty excited about what I'm going to eat today, I'll be honest. How, how many of you have spent more time thinking about the outfits your kids would wear than our victory over death? I think some of what's happened in churches like ours, I don't think necessarily every church, but I certainly think in churches like ours, is that we've embraced, I would call it an under-biblical gospel. It's not an unbiblical. It's not a wrong message, but perhaps an incomplete message. 
And what we found is that it does not sustain very long. And speaking on behalf of my profession, some of what I think has happened is, and sorry if this is offense, it's just a perfect illustration. I believe we've sold you watered-down whiskey. You know what I mean by that? Drink this and this will happen to you. You drink it and you find that there was water in the solution. We, maybe some of y'all had this experience. We invited you over to the party and said it'd be the greatest party in the world and we turned the music off. We said, we said come with us and, and we'll take you to Disney and instead we delivered you cold Domino's pizza. Nothing against Domino's, but let the reader understand. Easter, the full gospel it announces, is the antidote to our boredom. And we're going to look at one verse this morning to see how. It's found in perhaps the most famous prayer of all time. Many of you are probably familiar with it. It's called the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, the goal of it, is to teach us how to pray uh, in such a way that we, our hearts would become more like God's heart. God's heart. But by following this pattern of prayer, it would reshape our desires, it would reshape our affections so that we would love the things that God loves. Jesus teaches us something about what this actually looks like in the central verse of the prayer, verse 10. He says, when you pray, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's start here with kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Uh, in essence, the simple way to understand it is the kingdom of God is the place where, I, where God's ideas win the day, where what God wants done gets done. And when most of us think of that place, I'll use another Disney illustration here. We think of it like Tomorrowland. Y'all know Tomorrowland? Where my Disney people at? Nobody. A couple of, couple, yeah, okay, okay, I see you, I see that hand. Um, Tomorrowland, don't press the illustration too far because Tomorrowland's kind of cheesy now. There's a section of the Magic Kingdom called Tomorrowland, which people in the 60s said this is what the future would be like, and you go there now, and it's like not at all what the future looks like. We're, so don't press the illustration too far. Um, my point is, when we think of that place, the kingdom of God, we tend to think of it as this place that's out there one day. Jesus seems to acknowledge that it's, it's up there, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come like it is somewhere and let it come here. He acknowledges that it's up there where God and the angels live, but then he teaches his disciples to pray that it would come down here too. And interestingly, his ministry, if you follow it through the gospels, announced that that up there kingdom is at hand now. That's the gospel Jesus came preaching and announcing. He came and said the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here now, at least in part. But I think it can be very difficult for us to see, especially as we get older. Because what happens? Maybe you started a business. Did all your due diligence. You read all the Peter Drucker books, and you did everything that he said. You started it, you launched it, did everything right, and the economy took a turn and then you closed shop. Maybe I had to get help with this in the last service because I couldn't remember the guy's name. My focus on the family, James Dobson. We're going to take the family back. Maybe you, you, you read the, the James Dobson study Bible. You did every family devotional. 
You did everything that you were supposed to do. You did it precisely right the way they told you. And your kids got to their 20s and their lives are a mess. They don't love Jesus and they're maniacs. Maybe you were diligent about health and fitness and you did paleo, keto, every, you did everything. And you exercised regularly and you had a heart attack when you were 50. I don't... I don't know. Every one of us at some point is going to face some kind of tragedy, some kind of loss, and life will feel like it's out of control. One of the hardest but most important lessons to learn in life is that life is painful and difficult for everyone at some point. And that some point may be, I don't know, 10 or 15 years long. But we can fall into this trap of thinking that we're the first people that have discovered that life is difficult. And the reality is, is it's hard for everybody at some point. So we live in this tension between the kingdom of God being at hand and life where it just doesn't always feel like it. So what the gospel has become for us is this booster shot from Jesus to help us hold on. Life isn't as it should be. And why is that? It's because we're sinners who've turned from God and rebelled, which is true. And what's the solution there? Well, Jesus died on the cross to forgive you, which is true. And then the message there is, now hold on for 30, 40, or 50 years. If you just hold on long enough, we'll get to tomorrow land. And one day, everything will be fine. And while you're wrestling with your pain, while you're wrestling with your losses and your own internal contradictions and your inconsistencies, make sure you tell everyone you can that their sins are forgiven. And should they agree with you and come to church, then we will teach them how to hold on for 30 or 40 or 50 years. Now listen, the message that Jesus died to forgive your sins is a good, true message necessary message. It's good, it's true, it's necessary, but it is incomplete. Christianity is not simply a hold-on religion. It's a get-going one, too. When believing in Jesus is reduced to getting heaven instead of getting hell, you will get bored, and you will find that Christianity is unsatisfying. God had larger intentions for you than simply getting in to heaven. Because think about what happens when our framework for Christianity is only about heaven or hell. You tell your friend, hey, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And this day and age, you get a response that's like, whatever. Okay, I'm going to golf on Sunday. But he died on the cross for your sins. Okay. What do you... And they're like, well, I guess I'm just not good at being a missionary. I guess I need to go to an evangelism class at church. Maybe, let's get a little more personal. Maybe you did the same silly sin, the thing that, the dumb thing you keep doing that you know you shouldn't do, and somehow you find yourself doing it over and over again. So what, what did you do? Well, we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves, which means remind yourself that Jesus has forgiven you. So you do the dumb thing, I'm forgiven. And, but then at the back of your mind, there's something that tells you, that says, you're going to do it again. And you're just kind of like, probably going to do it again. Probably going to just ask for forgiveness again. Maybe life gets really painful. Loss hits. Holding on seems harder and harder. And you're just not sure what you're even clinging to anymore. Reading the Bible is boring if you ever do it. You don't pray. 
Church is kind of lame. You get real critical of the preacher, which is like, we're all just trying stuff. No matter what church you go to, you'll get mad at whatever church you land at. Like, I don't know what to tell you. What's missing? What's missing? In part, and I'm working through this, but part of what I think is missing is that we and our tribe have lost what it means to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've forgotten that when Jesus came and preached the gospel, the message that he preached was repent because the kingdom is at hand. The Lord's prayer was built on this real famous prayer that Jesus would have prayed all the time growing up, every time he went to synagogue. It would have, and it, would have just, it was so uh, interwoven into the culture of society. Like, it's like the old Methodist prayer. If you know this, pray this with me before, before meals. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. Even if you don't go to church, you, you probably know that prayer, right? Like everybody just knows it, and it gets ingrained in the culture. And so this, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Uh, I believe this prayer was called the Kaddish, not the hot dish, but the Kaddish, whatever. Um, I don't know how to say it. Everyone knew it, and this was likely a foundational piece of the Lord's Prayer, in the sense that this informed Jesus' mind and thinking. And right in the middle, there's this section where they would pray this, may God establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days. So this was a regular prayer that was going through the minds of Jews in Jesus' day. May God establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days. So when Jesus comes along and prays, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, your kingdom come. When he comes announcing the kingdom was at hand, his Jewish audience would have immediately recognized what he was saying. And there was an expectation that Jesus was the one who would do it, which helps explain some of the excitement behind the Jewish crowds on um, Palm Sunday, when they're basically saying, here's the king, we're going to Jerusalem. Our guy is finally going to get into office. Here comes the king, down with Rome. Jesus is king. Hosanna, they cried on Palm Sunday. The king has come. But then, y'all know the story, the king dies. The king is executed. The kingdom didn't come, it was crucified. What do we do now what? What do we pray? And you know what happens next. The king does return. He rose, and having risen, he sends. What does he say to his disciples? Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus dies, Jesus rose, Jesus forgives, Jesus sends. For us today, this passage Go and make disciples means go and tell people their sins are forgiven, which, listen, is good and we should because their sins are forgiven and they can come home. This is good news, but that cannot be the only message. For the disciples who heard this, what this meant was not waiting for the kingdom to come one day, but going and living the kingdom of God. Of course, we don't have it within our power to make the earth perfect until Christ returns. But what has this meant for the history of the church? Go and make disciples. Well, they, they would see sick people, and they would say, in the name of Jesus, let's heal them. They would see enslaved people, and they would say, in the name of Jesus, let's set them free. 
they would say, there are poor people. In the name of Jesus, let's support them. They would see children without fathers and say, in the name of Jesus, let's adopt them. The, the full gospel says something like this. God loves you. God single-handedly rescued you from your sin. God brought you into the family business, and God sends you to change the world. And listen, our family is in the remodeling business. God's plan is to make the earth function like heaven, so that what he wants to happen down here happens down here, just like it does up there. Jewish, the Jewish people thought that the Messiah would come and do this on his own, like a one-man fixer-upper mission or something like that. Um, they were partly right. What they missed and what Jesus has revealed is that his strategy for accomplishing that mission is you and me. Jesus would accomplish this mission. How? By filling all who trust him with his spirit and sending them to go work so that the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven. Easter announces that this mission has begun and nothing can stop it. And I... I just know the people who come to this church regularly well enough to know at this point, there's something in us that gets very, very skeptical. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. I, I haven't gone to the evangelism class. I don't know the first thing about anything of any of these things. I, I don't. So Jesus isn't stupid. That's one of the theological principles of our church. He's not stupid. And so right before he gives this command, look at what he says to his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I think this is funny. I'd say this joke a lot. Uh, this word all right here, in the Greek, that word means all. <laughs> I love when preachers do that, who couldn't say trans-Greek to save their lives, and they're like, oh, but the Greek here, uh, it actually means... Uh, all actually means all. So all of the authority, every bit of it, up there and down here, has been given to Jesus. And then between this statement of reality, I have all authority, and this command to go, there's one beautiful word. Anybody know it before it goes up? What does he say? Somebody, I couldn't say who said it, but somebody said it. Therefore. Look at this. Therefore. So listen. Why go build the kingdom? Well, because we have this excellent training module for you to go through at the church. Or look at all of the skills you have. Look at all the talent. It's none of that. And if you need evidence, go look at the disciples. We see nothing that Jesus said, you know, like knowing what was in the heart of Matthew, he knew he would be a heck of a guy for the team. It, it's not about the people that are being called to join the mission. It's about the one who has all of the authority. Why go build the kingdom? Because Jesus has all authority. Who's going to try to pull one over Jesus? Or who has authority over Jesus? I'll tell you, it's not the politicians Whoever your guy is, or lady at this point, like, whoever it is, Jesus looks Pilate dead in the eyes, and he says, don't think you take my life from me. I lay it down. The government isn't going to tell Jesus what to do. He looks at Pilate and says, I could bring a whole mess of angels down and wreck your world, man. You think that you take this from me? I give it to you. You've not got no authority over me. Do you think you think sin has authority over Jesus? He looks at the cross and he says, I will flip you upside down. The shame that you intend to bring to me, I will flip upside down and turn it into something beautiful. 
You think death has authority over Jesus? He breaks out of the tomb. Not even death can hold me. Not even death has power over me. So what? Therefore, go. The kingdom is at hand. I am with you, and I have all authority. Christian, do you know the power you have at Easter? Divine power living inside of you. Do you know this about yourself? The spirit of the one with all authority is with you always. Therefore, go. Yes, go and tell everyone you can that they are forgiven and that the kingdom is hiring. And while you tell them, keep working for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you can go as big or as small as you want with this. Something we say on the staff all the time. I don't know if you know this, but we've got a big old building that needs a lot of work. And we'll say things like, there are no weeds in the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that? No weeds in the kingdom of heaven. So what do we do while we wait for that kingdom to come? Well, from time to time, we go pull weeds because we want this place to look like the kingdom of heaven. There are no orphans in the kingdom of God. So we go adopt and bring them into our family. There is no sickness in the kingdom of heaven. So we become doctors and nurses and we go and we heal. There is no oppression in the kingdom of God. So what do we do? We go and we work to bring justice. The sustainable Christian life is the one that is so filled with the presence of God, so hungering to know him that we look to that kingdom of tomorrow and we work to bring it into reality today. What is our future? Well, let's bring that into reality today. Every act done in faithful obedience to Jesus, every deed done today informed by the hope of tomorrow is the kingdom of God breaking through. I don't care how small it is. Are you bored? Have you forgotten the resurrection of Jesus? Maybe you need to remember the disciples. It's like, it's fun to get pumped up a bit about the Great Commission passages and stuff. But at the resurrection of Jesus, there's this beautiful verse. He appears before all of the disciples, and it's almost as if, you know, Matthew is whispering to the readers. He says, and they worshiped him, but they still had their doubts. Do you know that about the disciples? Think about Thomas. I see you walk through a door there, Jesus, but until I put my fingers on you, and Jesus lets him, you know? We are a mix of internal contradictions and inconsistencies. The disciples were willing, though they were untrained, and they had an experience of the risen Christ. So they went. Are you bored? Do you need to remember our family history? That people far less educated, far less impressive than you, have done amazing things. Not because of who we are in and of ourselves, but because of who lives inside of us and by whose authority we live and we work. Maybe you need to remember our future. We are bound for the promised land. One way or another, the new Jerusalem is coming down and that will be our home. So what do we do with that? Go. Pierce the darkness. May the kingdom of God come with your children, with your marriage, with your yard, at your job, on your vacation, and all that you do. Behold, Jesus is making all things new. And he's inviting you to come and join him 
so he can do this work through you. Our family is a family of world changers. Why not us? What if it's not about how wonderful we are, but, but what if the presence of Christ is in us just as much as he's ever been in his people throughout all of history? Why not in this place? Why not here with us? And so we gather to ultimately remember what gives us our power and what gives us our hope. So we remember on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, he thanked God for it, and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. This is what enlists you in the family business. When God asks for your resume at the job interview, and he says, why should I hire you? What's your response? You said, the body of Christ was broken for me. You said, I could come. And then that means you get the job, okay? You are in, if you believe this of yourself. The body of Christ was broken for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine, and he says, this is the cup which seals the new covenant in my name. This is what makes you safe with God. It's the blood of Jesus shed for you. How do you know you get tenure? How do you know you'll make it to retirement? The blood of Jesus has been shed, which means you are safe to risk, to fail spectacularly, to try hard, to go and build the kingdom of God. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward. There'll be stations in the back as well. Rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come remember and celebrate our hope together. Let's pray.